The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Thursday and this is George Hook with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the programme today. Gwyn Prince will be joining us at uh, 5.20 to look at some of the great political stories over the 14 years and a bit that The Right Hook has been broadcasting. But another regular guest is the former Wexford hurling manager, now, of course, an outstanding uh, hotelier. And the Monart uh, is a fantastic place with a great spa. I can recommend it. It is, of course, Liam Griffin. Liam, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. I'm in despair, of course, about Cork. I I read recently that it's the first time Wexford have beaten Cork in 60 years. 60 years ago, he was there when you beat us with Art Foley in goal and Nicky Rackard and everything. Yeah, I was too young, George, and uh, the younger specimen. No, I I missed that match, obviously. But sure, look, that was a great... But this is something just to move on. Still, the only time that anybody ever chaired off a member of the opposition team and Wexford chaired Nick, or Nick O'Donnell and uh, I don't know who else actually chaired Chris Deering off the field, and that was something special. You won't see that today in sport. No, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Mind you, the Christie Ring Bridge is a traffic problem in Cork, but we'll talk about that in non because... He was a traffic, he was a traffic problem for Coroner Back years ago, so don't worry. <laughs> this, this sedentary lifestyle... Um, yeah. The suggestion now is that from The Lancet, the British medical magazine, that spending your day in front of a computer and then your night in front of a television is going to shorten your life. Not exactly rocket science, though, is it? No, it's not exactly rocket science, but that's the way of the world at the moment. And also from posture point of view, standing over computers all day is obviously not good as well. So it's not rocket science. And... uh, but there, there's a lot of movements amongst the office uh, facilities nowadays to change that because there's a lot of stand-up desks and stand-up office, uh, stand-up conference rooms and stand-up meeting rooms. And that's obviously to get over this problem. And it is a problem, obviously. But it's very difficult to stand up at your desk when 90% of people working in offices are in front of a computer screen. Yeah, but actually there's a new system out there, actually, it goes up and down. You can actually put a desk and work as a high, you work as a high or you can work as a low, and you just adjust it, adjust on legs at the back, and you can just adjust them up and down. And that obviously is a good idea, because standing up is supposed to be, if the Lancet's in as well, and who am I to contradict them? But also, you know yourself going to meetings. I mean, the many meetings do fellows go to from a desk and then sit into another meeting and sit down there, and uh, there's a suggestion that meetings are much more efficient held standing up because uh, people are inclined to get on with it and move on. And uh, so that's a good thing as well. And what's wrong with a stand-up meeting? Well, we're on the third floor here. Um, If instead of getting the lift, I walked up uh, every day, that'd be a start too. Yeah, well, obviously, exercise. I'm not going to give you a lecture, George, on exercise because um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't, uh, you mightn't like me anymore. That wouldn't do. But anyway, no, I mean, obviously, exercise, I think the antidote to all of that is actual exercise. Um, I don't see why a lot of people, a lot of people now are great at exercise and a lot more people exercising, but still not enough people exercising. Uh, you know, and everybody thinks because you know, I know some fellas who 
played sport and played it at the highest level and never togged out again from the day to finish playing sport. And that's absolutely crazy. That's a recipe for disaster. So exercise brings back a balance into that kind of a lifestyle, obviously. And uh, I think that's the way to go. But there's a global pandemic now, The Lancet believes, that a huge number of people simply are not engaging in any activity, which increases the possibility of premature death by 60%. But you see, it's interesting. I keep giving out to the young people here in, in the studio. They At News Talk, they all eat at their desks. So they're sitting during working hours and they're sitting during... 30, 40 minutes of lunchtime when if they walked around the green and fed the ducks or whatever they did, they would be getting in some portion of exercise. Yeah, but you're talking about an old world, George. That day is gone. I mean, the days of people in lots of progressive jobs and your news talk, obviously, is progressive station is lunchtimes are not what they used to be and people don't stop, uh, drop off their desks at one o'clock and to come back again at two o'clock, a quarter past two. People sometimes they work flexy. They'll go out and they'll, you know they'll, they'll eat and they'll go back to their desk, and uh, that's the way of the modern world. I mean, there's an exponential growth in all sorts of organisations led by young people, and the reason there is is because uh, it, they're doing things new ways. You've less people doing a lot more work. For example, if you've got four people working in an office, they can actually reach the whole world now on the internet, and that makes them a lot busier in, in some respects, obviously in lots of respects, and so therefore. The working practices have changed and they may not have changed in the public sector or somewhere where it's uh, where there's rules and regulations which are uh, different than what's in the private sector. But it has changed and that's just the reality of the modern day life. But I, I believe it's changed for the worse. You can't tell me that not leaving your office for the entire day is a good idea. You can't tell me that. Well, I've done it myself long enough, so I can't say that it's not, but I will say what? this. You've never left the office from the time you went in the morning to the time you left at night. Yes, but I'm in a different kind of a business. I jump up from my desk and I go around and, 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 and the premises I'm in at the time. But what I would say is that has definitely led to a lot of people then being much more active outside of work. You see, if you just ride the roads anywhere now, you have never seen as many cyclists on roads as you're seeing today. You have never seen as many women. And by the way, incidentally, the recent stat I was looking at says that over 18 years of age, 54% of all the women exercise, and obviously less than that, like the, the men are the lesser, the lesser uh, part of it. So men are exercising less than women now in the over 18 age group. So that's an interesting thing that in your lifetime, that has absolutely changed 1 million percent because women weren't taking exercise to the same extent as, uh, as they are now. So that's a good thing, and I think people are making up for the fact that they're in offices all day by actually taking exercise. But then against that, again, there are people who are not. And then, obviously, as well as that, you've got type 2 diabetes creeping in for a lot of people, and the answer to that is exercise. Yeah, but look at the food that we, you know, if, if, if it's all takeaway, I just refuse point blank to take food away. I right. mean, if it's as much as a cup of coffee, I have to sit down and drink it there and then, but seated. I refuse point blank to take it away. Yeah, but you're stubborn now, Mule, anyway. And the bottom line is you're going to stick with your own ways. Now, do you ever heard of a Nutribullet, have you? No, what's a Nutribullet? Right, you can go and make up, and they make up some of the best concoctions for their health that you wouldn't drink anyway for a start of greens and berries and all oh, sorts of no, stuff in the morning. Oh, no, 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 Yes, no. to do that, George. Uh, and uh, get with the get with the get with the, the game, you know. So anyway, from there on in, uh, people, young people as well as that, 
they have better diets in many respects. Some of them don't, obviously. But a lot of those people bring in mixed salads and full of lentils and all sorts in little Tupperware ah, boxes for lunch. Yeah. And for you, you just want two, uh, you want roast beef, roast chicken and two veg and chips with it. Well, hold a while now. it shows, actually. Hold a while now. Hold a while now. When Christy Ringer is playing for, corner forward for Cork and we didn't lose to Wexford, he wasn't walking around the streets carrying a bottle of water and he was as fit as a flea. And I bet you you weren't walking around the streets of Wexford uh, with, with Ballygowan in your hand. I mean, whoever thought you could sell water to people until your man Jeffrey the Ballygowan came along and people started buying water? I wouldn't, I do not buy water. In fact, I don't drink it. Water was designed by God to make grass grow, not to be drunk by human beings. <laughs> You know, uh, you're a dinosaur at this stage now, I can tell you that. Listen, I go around with bottles in my hand as well at this stage and keep them in cars and everything else. Ah, hydration, George, hydration. You you get those two knees right and you stop and get hydration. How many all Ireland medals have you got? I've won for a, as a sub in an under-21 team. Right. <laughs> and were you hydrated for that match? I surely was. I was sitting <laughs> in the corner waiting to get on there. It didn't happen. Look, this water is a complete con job. Don't buy water. I mean, it's nonsense. The tap is fine if you must. Yes, but wait there now. In fairness to everybody else, we have a lot more information. Don't forget that most people can find out more information than their actual doctor as they stand with a, with a predictor. Uh, they can go on the net and find out a lot of things about certain, uh, about certain diseases or all sorts. But should we have water that people can't even drink? This is a country that's been uh, freedom of uh, all sorts of stuff since the early, whatever the hell it is, since the early part of the last century. And we can't even drink the water. That's the best. And you've got, jump, you've got fellas jumping up and down saying, we're not paying for water. And that's all it's doing. I can understand the reasons why you're in national taxation. But then you'll be buying water instead of giving it to, the, to Irish Water or whoever. Okay, the company's not a great company yet, but whoever... Water is non-drinkable in melodic okay. parts of Ireland. And why would you drink it out of tap to get E. coli? Well, you won't get E. coli if you put it into coffee and uh, boil it. So, I mean, I'm living testament to the value of 40 cups of coffee a day. All this fitness thing and all this is all claptrap, dreamt up by fellas right. like, okay. like Ben Dunn to get more customers to his gym. Well, I tell you now, you're doing ads for all sorts of people you will not be doing an ad for leotards or fitness anytime soon, right? So you better start looking in the mirror and start thinking, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not a step because I'm now down to 11 stone yards and going down further at this point in time because I go to a gym three mornings a week because it's a lifestyle choice and that's why I do it. I'm not doing it for any other reason. Well, do like you know what choice. I've done? Do you know what I've done? You were actually twice me at this stage, by the way. No, hold on, no, hold on. I have changed the name of the toilet from the John to the gym. So then I say, I go to the gym every day and everybody is suitably impressed. <laughs> but they're, they're wondering, what in the name of Christ is he doing in that gym? Look at the state of him at this stage. <laughs> I'm reading the paper in the gym and researching for the programme. Well, I'm reading the paper in the gym you're going to as well on occasion because that's another hour kill. Oh, there you go. But anyway, you better get with the projects because you, you need to look 
Look, it's an, I'll you send you. You need to change your lifestyle. No, no. I'm, you have, as well. I'll send you the hook diet. I've lost uh, over two stone on the hook diet. It's based on ancient Catholic theology. It, <laughs> the stations of the cross are part of it, um, but I've lost over two stone. Good. And your poor wife is doing the and same. And I the threw away. I threw away six black bags of clothes that I get, that that won't, are, are too big for me. <laughs> I'm a whippet. They just <laughs> hardly see the difference now between Christy Ring in his prime and me in terms of the the amount of spare flesh. Well, George, in fairness to you. There's not a team in the country wouldn't rather face you than Christy Ring, I can tell you that. <laughs> but finally, the, the, the lack of uh, exercise could increase the risk of premature death by 60%. I'm 75. Why would I be worrying about premature death? Yeah, but wait now. 70 is the new 40 or the new 50. So, like... You've got many long years left if you want to. And don't no, forget that your grandchildren will be well, 70, will be only halfway on the scale. No, so, the Bible like, and that, says... And that's because of lifetime choice as well. The lifetime Bible choice. says three score years and ten. Right, well, you're nearly there then. So <laughs> you're nearly ready for the wooden suit, but I don't think so. There's life in the old dog yet, hopefully. All right. Great to have you. Best of luck, John. Listen, just uh, enjoy it while Wexford have us. Corker on the way back. <laughs> Liam Griffin there. The Monart, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a fantastic hotel. And the spa is unbelievable. And Liam will look after you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back. Talking to... to, uh, Liam Griffin there about uh, lack of exercising leading to a premature death. Reaction's good. Liam was talking about standing rather than sitting, and Kathy is a community pharmacist. She stands at her computer all day. No problem. You're a card, George. Love the conversation, but glad I don't have to listen to you in the evenings. Uh, that's uh, Ingrid. Ingrid? No, 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 it wouldn't be my Ingrid. Anyway, Ingrid, thanks for that. George, me old mucker, the best exercise is a brisk walk. Running on concrete is bad for your joints, says Juxer in Crumlin. I absolutely agree. Running on concrete, particularly in the wrong shoes. Can I just counsel shoes? I see people running all the time on concrete in bad shoes, cheap shoes. You're causing a huge problem for yourself. Now, Liam said huge numbers of women exercising. Well, Adam is a PE teacher in a mixed school. He's lost trying to get girls to participate. Nonsense, this 50% figure. And then Martin lectures me. He says, remember, the more overweight you are, the more weight you lose initially. So losing two stone is not a great achievement. See how long it takes you to lose the next two. If I lost the next, uh, another two stone, uh, I wouldn't cast a shadow. Uh, so there's no way I'm going to lose two stone more, Martin. Uh, I wasn't four stone overweight. In fact, I wasn't, in my opinion, I wasn't two stone overweight, but there you are. And AM makes an interesting point that it may well be uh, found in the future that the real danger was drinking from plastic bottles rather than the water itself. Well, 
a lot's happened in the world over the last 14 years and a bit in the life of the right hook. And my next guest has been the mainstay of that for most of that time. It's the Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics, Gwydion Prince. Uh, Professor Prince, welcome to the programme. Well, George, delighted to be with you on the end of the Bright Hook as you translate into lunchtime, having been there at the creation. Yeah. So I remember you talking to me at that time, and then I was in awe. I was a rookie, and I, you were on ITN and everything, so I was in awe of you. But it's really interesting what happened, because I'm pretty certain when we first started talking we were talking about Iraq, and here we are now with this with this terror striking across Europe. What went wrong? Well, you're absolutely right. That is where we started. I was working at that time as the editorial advisor to ITN News at the time of the Second Gulf War. That's that's how you found me. What has gone wrong? I think that there are two big things that have gone wrong. One, which won't surprise our faithful listeners to the right hook, is the muddle and mess that the West has made in its attempts to relate to the Middle East. Uh, Iraq was uh, a successful removal of a dictator followed by a completely disastrous uh, failure to make the country whole again, because Mr. Bremer, if you remember him, the, the fated Mr. Bremer, actually sacked all the army and all the civil servants without having anything to put in its place. And so that's one side. But the other side is the thing which is very much in everybody's minds at the moment. And it's the problem which simply will not speak its name. There is something in Islam which, as a religion, allows fanatics to interpret the Quran in ways which permit them to do the sorts of things that these young men did just most recently, murdering a priest in the church in Rouen. And George, I mean, that particular thing is so iconic because you're a historian in your reading too, and it takes you straight back to the Middle Ages. Uh, this is, of course, religious. And of course, it's the case that the Islamists who are losing uh, the war in their in their so-called Islamic State, the, the badlands of northern Iraq and uh, of Syria, they're trying to foment uh, inter-religious, inter-group inter conflicts in Europe. We have to try and resist them, but we don't do that by pretending uh, that this isn't something to do with the many, many verses that are in the Quran, uh, which can be quoted, uh, if taken literally. Uh, to justify the murder of Jews and Christians. Well, of course you could do that with the Bible too, couldn't you? I mean, an eye for an eye for and a tooth for a tooth. And but not actually like... to that extent. I mean, right. I like, I, I guess, uh, many, maybe many of your listeners, I mean, I've, I've read my Bible, yes. I've also read the Quran. Um, you know, we could make this afternoon a conversation about the history of why one of the great world religions has this particular fighting streak in it. The point that we need to make, though, is that the potential is there for those who wish to make this very narrow reading, the Salafiyya they're called, or the Wahhabi, uh, those who uh, are the followers of Said Qutub, those who uh, were the found, who was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, this particular genie has been let out of the bottle. 
And, and part of the problem that we have in dealing with it is this failure to actually name the problem for what it is. Because the longer we don't do that, the more desperate our friends who are Muslims feel, knowing that they are caught in the middle of a civil war within the Ummah of Islam. There is a civil war between the vast majority who are decent, rational people and this small, murderous minority. And so we have to declare ourselves on the side of the decent people here. Yeah, but it, just because we, we, I mean, we're covering 14 years here, you and me, in a comparatively mm. short time. But but there is one key thing here, though. When you talk about, uh, you know, uh, taking the Koran literally, I mean, there are people who take the Bible literally in relation to creationism, for instance, and, and sort of believe that in six days the world was made and on the seventh day he rested. And there are fundamentalists Christians who believe that. Now, I agree they're not going out and killing anybody, but nevertheless, uh, religious texts been taken seriously. We then criticize I- Islam uh, for, say, for going back to the Crusades and, and saying, you know, um, we're going to kill all these, these uh, Christians because of the Crusades. I mean, if you came to Ireland on another one of your hunting trips, Gwen, don't you find to do it? Yeah, you'd find people talking about the Normans arriving in the 12th century. But George, you've already made the point, and look, we've got a lot of ground to cover. You've <laughs> made the point that you can take these things literally if you're a creationist, but it doesn't cause you then to feel that you need to go out and cut the throats of people who are of another religion. And so, of course, it's something which is yeah. a consequence of the politics of the Middle East, the failure of the Middle East over now three generations to find a political mechanism which allows tolerant societies to be created. You know, the nation state in the way that we have it has been tried. It doesn't work there because the ummah, the, the, the overall identity of being an, a Muslim is something which is over and above any particular okay. state. And then we have this dreadful problem uh, of the civil war between uh, the the Shia and the Sunni, um, and our meddling, particularly the hapless meddling of the soon-to-be-departed President Obama, um, has actually made that situation far Yeah, worse. that's a neat segue, because, of course, we were, when we were started talking, it, we, George Bush was, was hanging around. Now, although there isn't a lot of difference between Bush and Obama in terms of, of their hapless handling of the affairs. I mean, all the supporters of Obama think he's fabulous, but, but the facts tend to speak otherwise. I'm afraid that's true. And isn't that extraordinary? Because I was looking back at the list of conversations that you and I have had, and my God, we've had a lot of them over these years. Uh, just before Obama, when we were talking, and I was uh, actually one of the first people on this program to raise the possibility for listeners that maybe Mr. Obama was a name you needed to become familiar with. Um, and then suddenly he won, you know, the audacity of hope, all of that tremendous optimism that he was going to be able to be something different. And actually, he has been, uh, and you know this from our past conversations, in my judgment, he's been one of the most, um, the most dangerous, actually, American presidents in foreign policy terms because he's damaged the security of the West in general, of which we're all members. But at home, he has been a source of division. And, and it's not, I'm, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, he's not the cause of Mr. Trump, but the fact that he's produced this divisiveness where you have so many Americans who feel so furious about, about him and the policies that he's pursued 
has contributed to this vast fissure in that society. Uh, and it's, of course, not totally dissimilar uh, from the hollowing out of center-ground politics, which I think has been another theme of our conversations over these last 14 years. We've seen portfolio parties um, of the, the center-ground, the center-left, the center-right, losing out to single-issue types of politics, to the rise of the internet, the clicktivists, as they're called, the sort of people who put Mr. Corbyn into the leadership of the British Labour Party. Um, and so you see the rise then in Europe of the extreme right and the extreme left. Now, that's not just because of the internet. I mean, that is also another of our conversations, George, and a long and ongoing one, which has been about the travails and the tragedies of the European project and how that has actually stimulated the very thing it was supposed to stop, which is this return to extremist politics in Europe. But one, I was listening to... Um a Russian, now domiciled in the USA and, and lecturing in, in Russian affairs, um, making the point that, that we are now in back in the Cold War that we thought was gone forever uh, after Gorbachev and the fall of the wall and all the rest of it, that this Cold War uh, is uh, back. And he made the interesting point. He says that, strangely enough, Hillary Clinton is a Cold War warrior. So, I mean, is there a danger that that this is going to go to the point of, of real danger for all of us between the two superpowers? Well, I'm afraid it is. And, you know, again, I was looking back at the things you and I have talked about. I can see that in 2007, George, we had a conversation about Russia's Cold War rhetoric. And that was just before conversations that we had over the Russian intervention in Georgia in 2008. And I warned at that time that if the West, which means NATO principally, uh, did not stand up and deter Mr. Putin at that point, this was not going to end well. Sadly, we didn't deter him there. And as we know, he marched on. And now we have a whole litany of actions in Ukraine. Uh, and, in, and now, of course, threats to the Baltics and a general uh, march across Eastern Europe in which Mr. Putin has shown himself to be a more devoted enemy of us in, in many ways than, well, certainly Mr. Gorbachev ever was. So we have created, we have partly created through our failure as the West to be resolute in our deterrence, we've created a situation that's permitted Mr. Putin to uh, entertain these diplomatic, militarily-backed adventures. In, in a society that is in many ways bankrupt, demographically and, and financially as well. So it's a very dangerous moment. Oh, just a historical precedent. Um, there obviously is, is a strong belief that had, had um, Britain particularly and, and France stood up to Hitler at, at Czechoslovakia and, and uh, you know, that, that he never thought that he'd get away with that. But the, the, the Western uh, countries allowed him to do it. Is that... Essentially, like, is that if you fail to appreciate history, you live to repeat it? Is that well, essentially I'm afraid that what is we do? true. I think that is true, George. And yes, your analogy is right. The, the, the precise analogy, actually, is the Russian invasion of the Rhineland in 1936, because, as you'll recall, uh, the Russian, uh, sorry, the German invasion of the Rhineland in 1936, because the Nazi uh, forces had three sets of orders. Um, and one of the sets of orders was if you are stopped at the border, uh, and uh, you're in any way uh, you're in any way contested. You turn around and go home. 
But they weren't, and they went on. And I'm afraid that our failure to stand up to Mr. Putin, uh, first over Georgia, and then especially over Crimea, uh, has encouraged him to think that we are paper tigers. And he is clearly now engaged on something quite simple and quite fundamental, which is nothing less than undoing the whole of the post-1945 post-war settlement for Eastern Europe. He wants to regain control over what he thought of as Stalin's uh, Soviet sphere of influence. And, you know, he's doing a pretty good job of it. And it does link, of course, to one of the other big conversations that you and I have been compelled by circumstance to have, which has been the rolling crisis that has become the European Union. Because especially the euro, which I, as you know, think was the biggest geopolitical error the West has made in the last 25 or 30 years, that created the opportunity through the desperate economic crisis which is created in Greece for Mr. Putin to start meddling in that part of the world. Now, my guest is Professor Gwydion Prince. He at the, he's at the London School of Economics, where he, he is Professor Emeritus. But more importantly, from our point of view, he's been on this program pretty much for its life, discussing the various geopolitical things that we're now sort of just remembering, he and I, and how they haven't gone away. If anything, they've got worse. Now, when I launched your book for you in Trinity, um, all those years ago. 2008, uh, that was, George. What? 2008, that was. <laughs> it was around the time of the famous Lisbon, and when we were voting no and no and no, and they kept get, bringing us back to, to vote yes. <laughs> um, you, were, you were a bit alone at that point, though, in saying this isn't going to work. I mean... It's poor consolation now to say I told you so, isn't it, for you? Well, it is. I'd I'd much rather not be in that position. Uh, I don't like being Cassandra because you'll remember that, uh, firstly, Cassandra tended not to be believed, even when she was right. And at the end of it, she finished up with Clytemnestra's axe in her skull. And I don't particularly want that (laughs) as the outcome. Uh But yes, on this particular issue, I have, as, um, as our devoted listeners will recollect, I've been consistently worried about the direction in which this originally noble idea got derailed. And the big wrong turning that was taken was was the euro, the attempt to try and drive a political union that actually had no public support in the countries uh, of Europe, and to do it by creating this unified currency, which actually was economically illiterate. And so it meant that there were really two alternative views of Europe which could not be reconciled. And that book, which, which you so kindly launched for us at Trinity, and it was a, a splendid event, and I remember it with great affection. Uh, the book was called Another Europe, if you remember. And there was a sort of question in that, because it was, is it going to be a Europe which is actually in harmony with what people who live in Europe actually want, citizens, or is it going to be this imposed this imposed structure of a sort of a sort of imperial state, as Mr. Barroso once rather amusingly called it, but um, quite accurately, that there's been created by the Brussels nomenclatura. And Brexit, I think, is the moment at which uh, there is another great choice coming up, because the British have made their choice. And I think the question now is what other countries, other populations of Europeans who feel unhappy and unsatisfied with the inability of their uh, of their leaders to get Brussels to actually 
pay attention to what they want, but as yeah. happened with you, to send you back when you give the wrong result in a referendum to vote again and again. This cannot go on. All right, but, but Gwydion, Gwydion Prince of the London School of Economics. Um, Brexit, in a way, is the logical extension of your book, because you said another Europe, you put a question mark on it, you said, is yep. it going to be a Europe that people want or a people of Europe supposing them? British clearly thought it was imposing them, but the interesting thing about going back to vote ye- until you eventually vote yes... Hasn't the candidate for the Labour Party, Owen Smith, hasn't he said that if he is elected leader of the Labour Party and ultimately prime minister, he will ask them to vote again? Well, he has said that. uh, But uh, the last time I looked, the opinion polls are suggesting that Mrs. May is somewhere over 40 percent and that uh, Mr. Corbyn has taken the Labour Party to levels of support that have not been seen since the time of um, Michael Foote. So I think it's it's not that likely that he's... No, but those figures are because of Corbyn. And and the, 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 the worry for people, I'm sure, in the Labour Party is that even though nobody in the Labour Party in Parliament wants him, he's elected by the rank and file, and the rank and file are going to put him back. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I'm saying to your question about Mr. Owen, who nobody ever heard of until last week, that... I'm not sure, with all respect to the excellent Mr. Owen, that he's likely to have that opportunity. Um, There's another reason as well, which is that the uh, current British government, Mrs. May's government, has made it clear that before any elections are held, uh, we will have taken the irrevocable step, uh, probably by repealing the 1972 European Communities Act, um, or perhaps by uh, activating the uh, famous Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, to make British departure from the EU irrevocable, so that those of the Romanians who uh, haven't accepted the verdict of the people, and there are a lot of them who feel that way, they say the people were too stupid to be able to make this decision, and uh, clever people ought to tell them what to do. Those people, I think, will not have the opportunity to undo the will of the people. And were they to try and undo 17.4 million votes, it's the biggest vote on any issue in the history of British democracy. Um, I think that then you would see something in this country which uh, has not been the case since the middle of the 17th century, which is potentially civil. All right. Okay, look, um, you, you were correctly christened all those years ago at ITN as Dr. Doom, and, and uh, <laughs> you've just proved the accuracy of that uh, nickname today in the last 15 minutes or so. Uh, to close your your contribution to the right hook after 14 years, uh, give me an uplifting statement to send me home happy. Well, uh, George, this isn't just for you. It's actually really for your listeners. Uh, It's your listeners and me together saying something about you. So uh, you'll have to just blush quietly. Why have I gone on talking to you and the right hook for all this time? Well, I will tell you, George, it's quite straightforward. I think, people of Ireland, that you've been extremely fortunate to have a broadcaster who has the depth of knowledge uh, and the sense of humor, and also the common touch, the ability to relate to people high and low from every walk of life that you, George Hook, have got. You deserve the reputation that you've got in your country. Um, and it's a great honor, I feel, that I've been able to play a small part in, uh, you know, as your chorus, um, in making you the important figure in the landscape that you are. And I look forward 
to being able to continue this supporting chorus role when we move to lunchtime, <laughs> because I think it's high time that a man of your advanced years is not made to stay up so late. <laughs> Gwyn, that was very kind of you. At lunchtime, of course, it's all optimism, so no Dr. Doom stuff, okay? That'll put me off my banana sandwiches. That well, I shall come across, George. What I shall do, here's a promise, is that once you get settled into the lunchtime program, I think it's time for... Um, uh, meet the professor again, don't you? So we'll get your producer to get me over and we'll have something where we're in person in in Dublin. All right, and we'll have a hunter standing six and a half hands for you to jump at Six and a half? I hope it's going to be a bit more than that. Mine is 17-2, and he is Irish, by the way. He comes from Galway. All right, okay. Professor Gwydian Prince, Professor Emeritus at uh, London School of Economics, and to many of you, of course, it's... uh, friendly grin and uh, coming up next we're going to have business the right hook with the new mitsubishi outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips mitsubishi motors.ie i'm joined now by Karina Fitzpatrick, who is a, a protester for gender equality. She was escorted from the Knock and Stocken Festival by Gardy last weekend for being a topless. Karina, welcome to the programme. Hello, George. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, what was the plan? Well, there wasn't a plan. <laughs> uh, just a uh, reaction. Uh, but, but you took your shirt off and you weren't wearing anything underneath, I presume. Precisely, yes. Um, I was reacting to um, to a a person who was making disparaging comments towards my friends um, because they were dancing in in the sunshine, and I asked him why he felt the need to um, to comment on them that way, and it led to him um, being very patronising and saying, "Oh yeah, you know, gen- you know, just the inverted commas, free the nipple, yeah, right, you know." gender equality, you know, just rolling his eyes and being patronizing and being rude. And I said, you know, my friends don't come into, you know, this space, into, you know, to the festival to have their bodies judged or to have, you know, to please you or displease you. You know, you're not a factor. And and basically, um, we don't have to adhere to, um, to what your view on our bodies is. I don't have to see my body as you see it. I don't need your validation and I don't um, I don't exist as a sexual object even if that's how you see me I'm a person and I just uh, I just I, uh, I have to confess you've lost me uh, <laughs> you've lost me I I I was under the impression uh, from um, my reading of the story that uh, this was some to do with gender equality absolutely it's to do with um how women are seen as sexual objects and how um, we're still being framed from that angle, even from the pressures that are brought on us socially uh, in how we dress and to, you know, how, what we wear and how we present ourselves, how we behave. Um, I'm saying that there were hundreds and thousands of topless men at the event. Uh, there was loads of people doing all sorts of licentious and strange things because we were all at a festival having a good time. But um, it was only me that was reported as guards, and it was only it was only women who were acting in solidarity with that act that were arrested, uh, because I suppose the way I see it is that people feel um, that they could or sh- should 
or they just do, police women where in instances where they do not police men. Well, um, do, well, I suppose the most important thing really is that having done it, uh, do you now think that the cause of gender equality has been advanced? Yes, I do. I um, I had an amazing weekend and I spent it talking about um, issues that were very close to people's hearts. People were coming up to me. I was like some sort of homing beacon for people to approach and say, I saw what you did. I understood it. I'm with you. And it made me think about these issues. And people were coming to me with issues to do with um, their gender, their sexuality, their their personal journeys, but also uh, a lot of women were going to me with stories of sexual coercion, sexual harassment, rape, things that they had never told anyone before. They were coming to me and telling me because they felt that I was opening up a dialogue about how women are seen or how, you know, gender is seen and how much people's perception of our gender or our sexuality affects, you know, how okay. they behave towards um, But I... I the comparison with men taking their shirts off, I'm not sure is exactly valid that the police didn't um, take any men away who taken their shirts off. But presumably the police might have taken men away if they had taken their trousers off. Well, this is the thing. I mean, they did take their trousers off. And there's been, there's been performances done at Knock and Stock and by men completely naked. Obviously, I've got to go to this festival a bit more to uh, educate myself in my old age. So why, uh, if at uh, this Knock and Stock and Festival, which presumably is in Bavaria, um, if, if, they, if, they, if you were the only person taken away by the police because you took your shirt off, but men who, who danced entirely naked were not... Why did the police do that? I mean, clearly this is a festival, uh, which I have to confess I've never heard of until you gave it worldwide prominence. Uh, why did the police not take men away who were entirely naked? It's a double standard. It's very simple. Um, people didn't go up to the guards and complain, that man is acting licentiously or that man is undressed or that man uh, is clearly on drugs or, or anything. People don't see men in that in that way, or 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 they or they just let it rub off them all, like water off a duck's back. But for a woman, they feel the need to make okay. the complaint. If we can stay with the principle of if men can take their shirts off, women can too. Um, does that go for pubs, churches, O'Connell Street? Of course, I'm only saying where it's appropriate for a man to be topless, it's appropriate for a woman to be topless. I'm not saying we should, you know, we should go to church or the or to a hospital or whatever. I'm I'm just saying it's we you know if we're on a beach or if we're at a music festival, music festivals being a very common place for women to go topless all over the world. It's just um, this reaction to it here in Ireland is a very Irish reaction. You know, um, in other countries, they're going to be rolling their eyes at us. You know, I find it all a bit silly. But you did it to promote gender equality, so you must have been rather hoping secretly that the cops would arrive. Oh, no, I wasn't hoping that the cops would arrive. I was hoping that I could just stand there and enjoy the music as a human being and have nobody contest the fact that... um, that a woman can exist in a space and and not have her breast sexualized because basically 
just because society has created a sexual fascination with breasts doesn't mean that they are that they are they are for sexual gratification they're just they're just part of my body and i'm just standing in a space you know being as I am. And if I were to wear a, a top with low cleavage or with the side of my breast out or the under part or a see-through top even, when you contextualize a woman's body in a sexual context, that tends to be more accepted than a woman just standing there in a neutral, oh. non-sexual context. Right. And that's the point that I'm making. All right. Thanks so much for explaining that. That was uh, Corina Fitzpatrick, protest of a gender uh, equality. Um uh, the uh, I, I what uh, a childish little girl that person is says Jane, and tell her to get her off the cross. We need the wood for the fire. Says Evan, and uh, the Catholic Church and John Paul's theology of the body has been proposing that women are not sexual objects for men's gratification for years. So it's great to hear it validated. Said uh, uh, Ollie. Um, I I think the is clearly my education has been hugely weakened by the fact that I've never been at the Knock and Stockin Festival uh, where half the population would appear to be going naked. I certainly missed out on that. Um, the real question for this to me is that Karina Fitzpatrick did it to promote gender equality. Therefore, um, she doesn't need to promote gender equality amongst the people who believe in gender equality or the people who believe in feminism. She has to promote it amongst the people who don't believe, the objectors. So the real question for her and for anybody else to ask is that did that convert the opponents uh, to the cause? And I'm not sure it did. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie All right. Um, not a lot of sympathy for the idea of gender equality for my previous guest. Uh, Gail, for instance, much as I'm for equal rights, women have breasts and they will and always have been a sexual thing. She's being silly and immature. Uh, so, serious question. If a man were to strip below the waist and just walk around, would your guess be cheering his freedom and challenging of gender norms? Um, well, in fact, I think she would. And she would not argue that he was making her feel unsafe. I think that's her point. We all should take our clothes off. Um, so, uh, can can we not leave the sex talk at after nine o'clock? Actually, uh, it wasn't sexual at all. Uh, so, I think it should really cop on a bit. Now, I'm joined by uh, Chris Phillips who is former head of the United Kingdom's National Counterterrorism Security Office. Uh, Chris, welcome to the programme. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, well, obviously, um, that you knew you were going to create waves That when you said that Ireland is a soft target for terror and is making the same mistakes as Belgium, France and Germany did 10 years ago. How so? What are we doing wrong? Well, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think you just probably haven't quite woken up yet to the fact that uh, this terrorism that we're facing now is actually one that's aimed at all the West uh, and not just 
the the UK, not just France, Germany or Belgium. This is something that we all have to face. And quite frankly, with their tactics being to kill as many people as possible, uh, uh, it doesn't really matter who those people are. And, and, and I think what I said, which I still stand by, is that uh, 10 years ago, I went over to Belgium and France and Germany and was telling them about the terrorist threat at the time. Uh, and kind of was told really in no uncertain terms that look, this is a problem for the UK and the US and the rest of the Europe don't really have this problem. And of course, it's all come home to roost now because the, the terrorist threat is right across Europe. Now, on the, the basis of when you start explaining you're losing, Angela Merkel has cut short her holidays, which is very rare for Germans to cut short their holidays, come back to sort of defend, in essence, uh, her approach to migration into her country, where there are increasing uh, voices of disagreement about that policy. Um, I, I, is that one of the key issues, or what Obama has used many times, it's homegrown terrorism. I mean, many of the people who commit these crimes are citizens of the country that they are living in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a three-pronged side to this now. We, what we have is a very small number of fighters that have come from Syria and Iraq, and they've done some horrible things over there. Uh, but they realize that they're getting beaten uh, and they will be beaten by the joint forces that are surrounding them. And uh, probably by the end of the year, Islamic State will not exist as an organization. So their only way to kick back at uh, what's happening to them is to actually attack in the West. So what we know for a fact is that they have sent people back to the West to commit offenses. And of course, a lot of them are European citizens, so they can go anywhere in Europe. We, we have two other groups as well, though, that are popping their head up and, and causing all sorts of concerns. And that is the homegrown uh, people that are self-radicalizing themselves on the Internet. Uh, and today there was a very good example of how easy that is within, within the UK to speak to people in uh, Syria and Iraq from ISIS and actually get radicalized on the Internet. Uh, and they're willing to go and do something. And we've got the third group who are people probably that don't have much of a religious bent, but actually have lived a life that's non-Islamic and, and feel that uh, their, their means to redemption is by doing something ridiculous and killing people for the cause so that they can uh, uh, resolve all their, uh, all their past sins. And, and we've seen that across Europe this week. But one of the things about homegrown terrorism and self-radicalization, if we talk about the Irish context, because you were talking about the Irish context and and you were saying we, we're making the mistake now that we think it won't happen over here. And that's a mistake the Belgians and the French and Germans made a decade ago is that you don't know many of these people are being radicalized. One of the killers of that priest in Saint-Étienne, they identified him by DNA because his body was chewed up by bullets. But his mother said, it's not my son. My son is a good boy. He would never kill anybody. So this sort of theory that the neighbours are going to notice. It doesn't really hold up. If his mother didn't notice, how the heck are the neighbours going to notice? Well, pretty much every terrorist uh, uh, atrocity, um, particularly the homegrown variety, 
Uh, it's followed uh, by an investigation by the police and the security services, obviously. Uh, and what we find is that there are significant numbers of people. Sometimes they're even professional people like doctors and teachers uh, and those people, maybe imams even, that, that have had suspicions that people were going to go and do something terrible. I mean, we've seen the arrests in um, Nice uh, subsequent to that attack where pretty much, you know, five or six people, it appears, knew very well what he was going to do. Now, those people are the ones that really we need to get to come forward to to stop this from happening. Because if a person decides to get his gun or get his bomb or get his truck to go and kill people, by that stage, all we can do is reduce casualties. Uh, and that's a terrible place to be. We, we need to be upstream of that and stopping people when they're becoming radicalized. But what about, the, which is a very, I, I think, much trumpeted sort of attitude. Listen, we really can't be tough on these guys and we really can't have tough border controls and we can't lock them up because if we do all those kind of things, we're playing into the hands of, of ISIS uh, by doing this. We really have to be nicely, nicely with nice communities where uh, we, we, we get them before they become bad guys. Is is that where we're at? Well, I think this is something that needs to be discussed in society because what we do know, and we've seen it on your island, that uh, that actually internment certainly doesn't work. But what do you do with people that are showing terrorist uh, sympathies that maybe at some stage are going to go and kill 50, 60 people and yet at that time have not done enough to, to be put into prison? What are we going to do with these people? How are we going to manage them? And we saw with this poor priest that was killed, you know, the guy had a had a tag on his leg. Um, and, you know, and what on earth uh, good is a tag going to do when he's going to go and kill someone and realize that he's going to be killed? But also a tag time. that was turned off four hours a day. Yeah, exactly. And what what, what is the point in that? That's not going to stop him from going and killing someone. Well, it? yeah, but Chris, uh, Chris Phillips is formerly head of the United Kingdom's National Counterterrorism Security Office. But Chris, isn't this the kind of nicely, nicely approach that, you know, we've really got to give him four hours to turn off tax so he can go to the bathroom, kiss his girlfriend or go to a movie. Um, I mean, either we are, uh, we, we've tagged them and uh, we think they're a threat or not. It's one or the other. The, the other point about terrorism, or, or particularly lone wolf type type attacks, um, there is an oxygen by uh, the the more that's talked about it, isn't that so? And what's your view? I wonder. Certain French newspapers, particularly Le Monde, now are not going to publish pictures or names of terrorists who've committed an atrocity. Do you think that's important? It is a very good point, actually. Um, what I would say is that you have to bear in mind, I don't think the figures will be anything like this uh, in Ireland. But if you think of uh, France, they've got 10,500 people in the, in the same situation, effectively, as the two guys that killed the priest. In the UK, we've got about 2,000 plus people in the same boat. So how do, what do we do? Do we lock up these 12,500 people? all of whom, actually, if you remember, have complete access to Ireland, uh, complete access to the rest of uh, Europe. So it's a really difficult thing. You know, I think it's a good move by the French press to uh, deny them the, 
the power, yeah. if you like, of the of being named. As All right, finally, yeah, Chris. Finally, before you go, you're right. In internment didn't work, but we did have another system. We had special criminal courts where, if a, a, a superintendent of guardie said, in his opinion, is made this person was a member of the IRA, couldn't we say? If a guard says, in his opinion, this person is a threat to our security, we can put him on a plane and, and if he's a migrant, send him back to where he came from. Yeah, the trouble is, though, most of these people are actually European citizens. I and got that, Jim. You also have to worry about the European Court of Human Rights. Thing. So there are all sorts of issues with this that need to be thought through by, uh, by, you know, by innocent people who are looking to live a normal life and not get massacred in their church or in their shopping centre or their pub or nightclub. So there, there, there are difficult times ahead, George. And, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult for all of Europe over the, next, over the coming years ahead. All right, thank you so much. Chris Phillips, former head of the United Kingdom's National Counterterrorism Security Office.